Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey friends, glad to have you on the No Water Methodist Podcast. We uh, generated a, a small piece of content this last week just addressing the question of uh, do I need to attend church in order to worship the Lord? And uh, we might put that out separately or we might just tag it onto this, but um, I'd encourage you to, to take a listen to that. And if you find it a helpful piece of content to put out there, go ahead and Find it on our Facebook or YouTube page and, and repost it if you would. Um, this podcast, today's podcast, is uh, the proceedings from this last Sunday in worship, and it was the baptism of our Lord Sunday. That's the Sunday after Epiphany, and um, all four scripture readings deal with water imagery or imagery of God's power. Um, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, is the first reading, and it talks about how God is going to bring us through the flames and through the waters protect us, um, even sacrifice others for us, talk about what it means to serve a powerful God who is partial to His people. That might not be a... I know that the, uh, the Bible says that God shows no partiality, but um, that, that clearly needs to be tempered by verses where He clearly shows partiality for His, his children. Um, our reading from Acts is likewise about... Um, baptism in the waters, um, specifically the baptism of the Holy Spirit, um, and how we can receive the waters of baptism, but uh, if we haven't received the Holy Spirit, then uh, something is still lacking and needed. So we have this this small anecdote of the apostles coming to Samaria and laying their hands on people to receive the Holy Spirit because they'd been baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So we talked about the indwelling witness of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like in the lives of believers. And then finally, uh, we have the account of Jesus' baptism according to the Gospel of Luke. And um, all three together, good conversation on um, just the nature of the Holy Spirit and um, the essential notion of uh, how important it is that, that baptism is important, and that it's not just about a feeling, but it's about a series of actions that proceed out of our salvation that we receive. So um, it's it's not one of these singular things where we're going to make a, a single point and drive it home. It's more just a, a, a spread-out analysis of these texts. So um, I hope you enjoy your time with, with me. Um, some Sundays I'm more spread out than others, but it's God's Word. It's It's worthy. Uh, time spent. So God bless you for spending it with us, and uh, we'll look forward to, uh, hey, maybe write a comment on our podcast afterwards. Go to uh, iTunes podcast, yeah, the podcast option, and leave a review. Give us five stars. That might be a nice thing to do. Okay, I'm going to let you get around to listening. Be well. Last week, our Old Testament reading was a prophecy focused on how God's mystery is that he would bring all people to union with himself, specifically in the ancient Judean context. They had been flung to the far reaches of the earth by ancient invading armies, and the prophecy was that he would gather and collect them 
This one rides on its coattails, but we're going to ride it in a different direction this morning. So let's pay attention to our first reader. Our first reading is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 through 7, which you can find on page 1127 of your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the word of God. So it said it right at the tail end of that reading. Who is it that God is promising to bring back to him no matter what? What group of people? Verse 7, it said, everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So who is that? Well, Jesus is one of them. Is Jesus the only one? It's us, hopefully. Now, it gets confusing because, and you have to use your brain on this, but all humans were made in God's image, right? That's what the Bible says. And God loves all humans, right? That's what the Bible says. However, not everyone is going to be saved. The Bible also says that, doesn't it? So how do we make sense out of this? And how do we make sense of this? Verse 3, it says, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you. So God is choosing to punish some, to hurt some for the sake of the others. Now, whenever it comes to us, we sure hope that we are the precious and beloved ones that he is willing to sacrifice others for, don't we? And we live in a culture that worships niceness, so this makes us uncomfortable because it's not very nice to sacrifice some people for others, is it? We want a God who saves everybody. And we need to be clear, is Jesus' blood enough, powerful enough to save everybody? Absolutely, yes. His blood is absolutely powerful enough. It's not a question of how powerful God is. It's a question of how rebellious our hearts are. Does God make us be saved if we don't want to be saved? I don't believe so. I don't think that's the nature of love. I don't make my wife stay with me if she wants to leave and be with other men. I don't tie her up and put her in the basement. She's with me of her own free will, believe it or not. She likes me. She wants to be with me. Believe it or not, this baby likes me. She wants to be with me. <laughs> and believe it or not, our hearts, despite how sinful we are, we can be wooed by God's love to desire him back. 
Now, that doesn't mean that I'm good and out of my goodness I choose God. It means that God, out of his goodness, has changed my heart. And the church, all churches are supposed to be filled with people whose hearts have been changed, who know that the Lord loves them and have the confidence that God will draw us to himself. But ever since the beginning, there have been people prone to doubt whether or not God can actually save, whether or not his arm is actually as strong as it needs to be. There are people who doubt. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. The early church was born after the days of Pentecost. There was a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they had a good deal of money. Everybody was liquidating all of their assets and bringing 100% of it to the church. They laid it at the disciples' feet, and then they joined the assembly, and everybody had all that they needed. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to join the church, but they weren't sure they trusted all the way. So they gave a good deal of their money, but they saved some just in case it didn't work out. And that's how most Christians are. We'll, we'll give some of ourselves to Jesus. We'll give some of our trust to him. We'll, we'll trust God to save some of us, but in the meantime, I'm going to do the rest. You know? I'm going to worry about money. I'm going to worry about worldly affairs and esteem. I'm going to worry about uh, having the right people in my life. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to trust myself. I'll trust him with the end thing, maybe. But in the meantime, I'm going to fear losing things. It's a mindset of scarcity. Jesus tells the story of a sower who sows seed. The seed represents the word, and then every plant that comes up represents a person. But most plants don't work out. Satan plucks some of the seeds up right off the get-go. They're just not even moved by the word. Some people are moved by the word, though, and they spring up for a time, but some are rooted in the uh, uh, bad soil that doesn't go very deep. It's got rocks and stuff in it, so they eventually the heat comes and chokes them out. They're not able to grow deep roots, and others are choked off by thorns that grow up around them. And Jesus says this is a number of other people who they want to believe, but they're so concerned about the cares of this life, they either want pleasure and good stuff or they're afraid of the bad stuff and persecution and for one of those reasons or another they fall away and there's only some that really trust in the lord and hold fast to his word and bear fruit 30 60 100 times those of us who are gathered here want to be those ones that are not dying halfway through the process but are flourishing all the way and bearing fruit for jesus right because it's only those who will be saved Let's look at this. I wanted to read over this hymn because here in this reading that we just had, he, he makes a clear pro promise. I'm going to bring you through waters to come back to me. I'm going to bring you through fire to come back to me. But trust me, you're not going to get hurt. It takes a lot of faith to walk through fire and trust that you're not going to get hurt, right? Has anybody ever walked on hot coals before? I'm never going to do that. I, I, I do not have a story about me being cool and going across hot coals. But if Jesus says to do it, am I willing to do that? If there's something right in front of me that I know is going to hurt, am I willing to go through that for Jesus? Because oftentimes the price of faithfulness is tribulation, persecution. Jesus said, he who would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Not only does that not sound like fun, but a cross tortures and kills people. Am I so faithful in God that I'm willing to die to be with him, to be by him, to be in him? That's the standard for every Christian. Am I going to meet it or not? And scriptures like this put us right in front of it. You're going to go through some hard times. You're going to go through the waters. You're going to go through the fire. I'm going to be with you, and it's not going to harm you. He doesn't say it's not going to hurt you. He, mean, he merely means I'm on the other side of it, and you're going to be with me. There's nothing going to take you from me. 
Brothers and sisters, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? No, in all things we are more than conquerors. We know this one. We've, we say this every week. And yet, how often are we fearful that something can take us from the Lord? How often are we fearful? We're not even thinking about the Lord. I'm afraid of making somebody angry. I'm afraid of losing a family member. I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of losing my money. We have so much fear as we go through our lives. Jesus says, do not fear. This hymn, Nothing Between, it's so good. Nothing between my soul and my Savior. Nothing of this world's delusive dream. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. A lot of people sing that line and they go, wait, when did I do that? When did I renounce all sinful pleasure? When you follow Jesus, he says, deny yourself. If that doesn't mean denying sinful pleasure, I don't know what it means. I have renounced all sinful pleasure. Jesus is mine. Let nothing between. Nothing between, like worldly pleasure, is what I'm talking about here. We, you just sung it. You might not have been paying attention, but you're saying worldly pleasure isn't going to separate me from Jesus. Habits of life. Anybody here a creature of habit? I am. Raise your hand. You know you are. We love habits. We love habits. Kids love habits. Old people love habits. Everybody, we are habitual creatures. But sometimes habits stand between us and Jesus, don't they? Well, it's just the way I do things. Well, if the way you do things is sinful, quit it. Habits of life, though harmless they seem, it says here. Must not my heart from him ever sever. He is my all. There's nothing between. I saw a quote from A.W. Tozer this morning. And I had a picture of him that has the words, Anything that stands between me and reading my Bible has become my enemy. What if it's my kid screaming in the other room? Has he become my enemy? What if it's my needy wife? What if it's my job that'll fire me if I don't show up on time? The meme doesn't address those things. It's just a one, one little quote. But I mean, that gives some great simplicity, right? Anything that keeps me from my Savior has become my enemy. They don't have to mean to be my enemy. They have become my enemy. Verse 3, nothing between like pride or station. Anybody love being esteemed by other people? I do. Oh, man, I love it when they're, oh, you, you go to Pastor Jeffrey's church? He's a swell guy. That's bad for my, I mean, I, I love that I hate that, but I love that. I need, or I, I need to get past that. It doesn't matter what other people think of me. Pride, station, they don't matter. Self or friends shall not intervene. Though it may cost me much tribulation, I am resolved. There's nothing between. Last verse, nothing between even many hard trials. Though the whole world against me convene, even if the whole world's against me, I'm not going to leave Jesus. Watching with prayer and much self-denial, I'll triumph at last. Let nothing between. I love that hymn so much. We, I, hate, I hate that we just have to truck through these hymns and we don't talk through them very often, but that's one of the best ones. That's the sort of thing that we need to be thinking about Whenever Jesus, God, in this prophecy is saying, I am not going to let you go. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. He's saying, I'm going to bring you to me and nothing can keep you from me. Nothing can stop you. If I'm calling you to me, the only thing that can stop you is you. What if that's the case? What if there's actually nothing that can stop you on your way to Jesus except for you? How does that make you feel? Did you say scared? Well, yeah, it is scary because I'm my own worst enemy, right? There's, I've quoted him many times before. John MacArthur, he says, if we could lose our salvation, 
we would. The inference being, because we're morons, you know. We're sinful. We're born in sin. We're steeped in sin. We make bad decisions. If we could lose our salvation, if it was up to us, you and I would all be dead. If it's up to God, though, God is faithful. God doesn't. Susie, quit running through here. Just walk like a little lady. What do you need? Okay, well, just go. Mama's back there. She's so grown up sometimes. She sets up a little chair, and she's got her hymnal, and then she's just running laps around the sanctuary. Golly. People say, don't correct your kids. You're correcting them is more distracting than the kids are. I just can't help it. We can't have kids running around with my kids. God says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. There's going to be a day in the future when God is going to call us to him. It's not going to matter if we were hacked up in pieces. doesn't matter if our bodies were decomposed. won't matter if we were drowned in the sea. won't matter if every single person on earth hated us. won't matter if everybody thought we were awful people. None of that matters. All that matters is, have I pursued Christ as he has pursued me? He loved me first. Am I loving him back? It's on me to return the love. God has done everything needed for my salvation, and he is powerful enough to redeem me from whatever happens to me. But if I hold back because I don't believe he is powerful enough or because I don't love him enough, well, then I have chosen where I want to be, and it's not in his embrace. That sermon. Let's go on to our New Testament reading. Now, the setup to this in the, the book of Acts, Acts is what happens immediately after Jesus' death. It begins with Christ's uh, ascension into heaven. He sends his apostles back to Jerusalem where they pray in an upper room until the Holy Spirit descends upon them on the day of Pentecost. Then they go out into the streets and make many converts. The church is growing, and with the church's growth comes great persecution because they're preaching Christ, the guy that they just persecuted and killed. So Saul and others come and start killing and beating up Christians. So Christians flee to the surrounding territory. Samaria is north of there filled with Samaritans, people that traditionally Jews have hated. But Philip starts preaching to them, and what do you know? Many of them receive the good news. Many of them are healed. And so they, he makes converts of them, and he baptizes them. But we're about to read a, a story about where they weren't baptized right and had to be baptized again, which is something we don't usually talk about. But um, in the midst of this, there's Simon, Simon Magus, who uh, he looks saved, and then he tries to buy the Holy Spirit, and that's a big bad thing. We won't talk about that today. We're just going to talk about the nature of baptism, the Holy Spirit, the new birth. So with that in mind, I'd welcome our, our second reader to come forward to read our third reading. This morning. <laughs> um, I think you all kind of enjoyed my story from my dad that told me I got another one if you all want to hear it. Okay. <laughs> Um, they was these three sisters, and they were uh, all going to be wed the next upcoming year. And anyway, one afternoon, they were all together, and they were talking about their new lives with their husbands-to-be and what they did and everything. Well, one sister said, um, my husband is a butcher, and we're going to get all of our, everybody will get their meat for nothing. And, and they said, wow, yeah, that's all right. 
So the second sister, she said, well, my husband owns a bakery and we can get all of our bread for nothing, you know. And so the third girl looked kind of puzzled, like she didn't know what to say. She said, well, my husband's a preacher and I guess we can all be good for nothing. <laughs> anyway, that's one of my dad's old stories. Thank he loved, he loved preachers. I don't know if he, I think he might kind of like making fun of them. I don't know. But anyway, I thought it was funny. So anyway, we'll get back to the reading. Okay, our third reading is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, which you can find on the page of 1703 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaritan had accepted the word of God, they spent Peter and John to Samaritan, and then they arrived. They prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I misspoke. They weren't rebaptized, were they? These details matter. It's a, it's an, we stand at this time much later, 2,000 years, and the church has really spread out since then. You know, this is when things were pretty simple. There was one church. Everybody was under the headship of the apostles who were still alive. We stand thousands of years later, thousands of denominational splits later, thousands of years of forgetting first things. It's very hard to reconstruct what the disciples had. And preaching on this particular topic is something that some churches divide over. I'm not anxious about it because y'all aren't a divisive group of people. But even still, there are some people who say, unless you have spoken in tongues, you are not a Christian. You're not a, you haven't received the Holy Spirit. You can't be. Now, we would all, I would hope, say, understand it, you cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit working in you. That, that cannot happen. You're still dead in your sins unless you're a new creation. The Bible is very clear about that. And it gets kind of hairy because in Acts of the Apostles, the number one proof that someone has received the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Happens all over Acts of the Apostles. But there are other churches where some people haven't spoken in tongues, or I don't know if any of you have, but there are some churches where uh, to speak in tongues is bad. Tongues have ceased. It only happened back in the day. If somebody speaks in tongues today, well, they're, they're, they're evil. They're trying to, to make us feel less than or something. I don't, there's a big pushback from it. Now, Paul does say that people shouldn't speak in tongues in the assembly if something is not present. What's that something? An interpreter. But what if an interpreter is present? Is it okay to do? Yeah. And to be honest with you, sometimes I really hunger for big demonstrations of the Spirit's power. You know, I would love for someone to come in here in a wheelchair and walk out of here on their feet. Wouldn't that be amazing? I see some nodding heads, other people going, I don't know, this is getting kind of scary. I don't have anything planned, guys. I don't have any big stunt planned. I've been listening to this podcast on Jim Jones. You remember who Jimmy Jones was? I didn't know he was a big civil rights guy. A lot, very interesting stuff. But he was also on the circuit of these charismatic preachers that would 
figure out people's phone numbers psychically or their license plate number and rock their world. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. It does say something about healing. It does say something about speaking in tongues. And it does say being filled with the Holy Spirit is really important. You know, And there are some pastors that'll, that, that say it's not important. And I don't know why they say that because the Bible so clearly cares about it. Hear what happened here. They had already received the word. They believed in the word. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but they didn't know the Holy Spirit. They hadn't received the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John went there. They discerned that they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. They laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So is receiving the Holy Spirit important? Yes. I would even say it's essential. But here's the thing about essential. People get bent out of shape about it. There is only one thing essential for salvation, and that's faith, okay? Faith through grace. That's, that's the way that Protestants have always understood it. But the thing is, it's God who gives us faith through the grace of his Holy Spirit. Everything is connected. And after we have been saved through faith, if we don't do a number of things, then we are not saved. One of the things that we are told to do is baptize and be baptized, Baptism is absolutely essential. There are some people, they want to get into these hypotheticals. Oh, what if somebody receives saving faith, but then they don't get baptized? What then? Are they still saved? That's like saying, um, I don't know, what if someone's a mammal but doesn't grow hair or something? I, by definition, mammals grow hair. That was the dumbest example. <laughs> what, if, what if somebody's a carpenter and doesn't know how to use a hammer? What then? You mean to tell me they're not a carpenter? Yes. What if someone receives saving faith, but they don't get baptized? Well, that doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. Throughout the Bible, Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission, he says, go into the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't get more clear than that. That is the clear scriptural expectation. When someone receives faith, you baptize them. Is it baptism that saves them? No. Just like tithing to your church doesn't save you. Just like sitting in a pew doesn't save you. Just like praying every day doesn't save you. Just like reading your Bible doesn't save you. None of these things save you. They're all what you do when you're saved. I'm trying to think of a saying. I know there is one. It's circling around my head. But it just... If it, oh, yeah, here it is. If it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, if it sounds like a whatever, does things like a duck, it's a duck, right? We want to entertain a notion where someone doesn't have to walk or talk or smell or sound like a duck, and yet they're still a duck, and that makes no sense. Baptism is always the entry point into membership in Christ's body, the church. It's always the entry point into covenant with God. Always has been, always will be, but it is not baptism that saves. It is only faith that saves. Now, likewise, the waters of baptism are associated with the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, baptism, these things are tied together. Jesus said you cannot be saved unless you are born again by water and the Spirit, right? That's what he says to Nicodemus. You must be born again. And so this metaphor of water, this metaphor of baptism... It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual state. And so I'm zealous. You know, I'm not up here preaching every week. You must be baptized. I am preaching you must repent because you can eat, before you can even be baptized, you have to repent. That's how John did it. That's how Jesus and the apostles did it. But once you've repented and received the word and been convicted of your sins, baptism is the gate that leads 
to salvation. Faith is what saves. Baptism is, is right at the front end of that goal. Okay, I've said it like 10 times over in different ways. I hope it's clear. I am not saying, do not go home and tell people, Pastor Jeffrey said you have to be baptized to be saved. No, you have to be, you have faith to be saved, and then you have to do a thousand things from there, one of which is being baptized. But the Holy Spirit's important too. I made it sound like a second place thing. It's not. The Holy Spirit... I'm a head person. I'm all about beliefs and arguments. But really, our religion is a heart religion. And yes, it is a religion. A religion is something that binds us to one another and God. Our religion is a heart religion. And I'm going to focus on this with the gospel reading. We need to know that we are loved. And the one who lets us know how loved we are is the Holy Spirit. In Romans, we're told flat out that the Holy Spirit is an advocate. He testifies the Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Whatever God has rewarded Christ with, he will reward us with if we die to self and walk in him. That's the scriptural promise. Is God faithful? Absolutely. The real question is, are you and I going to be faithful? And that answer is not so clear. The clear, once that answer becomes clear, if we trust in him, we know that he's powerful, we know that his Holy Spirit is testifying to us that we are children of God, then our lives are lived denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily and following him. He already told us what to do. question is, are we going to do it? Is anyone here willing to say, yes, I will do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stop making excuses. I'm going to do what I'm told. I'm going to be an obedient child. Every day we need to recommit ourselves because if we don't, we forget. Quick, simple question. I talked about the importance of the witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart. What's there to be done if the Holy Spirit isn't testifying to your heart? Are you just damned and there's nothing to be done? You know, that doesn't, what should we do then? If, if the Holy Spirit, if I'm just not receiving that testimony right now, what do I do? Yeah, ask for that. Pray for it. Jesus tells us to pray for the Holy Spirit. He tells us our Father is a loving Father in heaven. He says, who of you, when your child asks for a fish, would give him a serpent or a scorpion, I think he says, or when asked for a loaf or a bread, would give him a rock? You know, God wants to give us good things. Therefore, pray for the Holy Spirit. That's about the best prayer you can say for yourself. And if you do have the testimony of the Holy Spirit, then do what you should be doing. Last reading. Our gospel reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. You can find it on page 1596 of your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with the water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. But this is before that. Verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. 
And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. As a parent, I read a lot about early childhood development. I'm not an expert, but I know a good deal. There's been a good deal of study done on the psychological effects of different living situations on children. And one of the things that we know is the first three years of a child's development are really critical. That's not to say that if they have a terrible upbringing first three years that they're irredeemable and life is just going to be awful. It just means things are going to be a lot harder. One of the things that um, determines in large part the psychological health of a child who then turns into an adult is... Their exposure, the, the nature of their relationship to their parents and how attached that they get. Some parents are very present. Um, my children are blessed to grow up in a two-parent home where we're around, both of us, every day. Not many children are blessed that much. For majority of American history, fathers have been out of the house but coming back every now and again while mothers have done the primary child rearing. But there are a lot of children who grow up in situations where neither parent is around very much and they're left to their own devices or in the care of other people and they be, uh, form attachment disorders. So there's a basic um, experiment that I read about being done where a child or caretaker brings, no, a parent or caretaker brings a child to a doctor's office or some other strange location, and then all of a sudden they're just gone. Their children, they, they watch the child while the parent is there, whether or not the child will play or be confident with the parent there, and then the parent will disappear and see what the child does. Children who grow up with with two parents and a solid household family, family household will, in a new environment, play with toys around their parents and, and seem to relax and be okay with other people. And even when their parents disappear, they don't lose their minds the way that kids will who don't have a good upbringing. Children who don't have an upbringing, when their parents are around, they're clingy and needy and annoying. They don't function well in those environments. And when the parent or caretaker disappears, they lose their minds or even worse, they're totally fine. And when their caretaker shows up, they're unaffected. They're not even happy to see him again. And I see kids like that in this town. I see a lot of kids with attachment disorders. And they don't do well as they grow up. I remember, um, you, you don't have to go through this. I dated a number of real messed up women before I, I met Sarah Beth. And it took me a long time to believe she actually liked me and wasn't going to cheat on me. You know? And there was one day, it was probably after we'd been married like a year, I finally realized Sarah Beth isn't going to leave me or cheat on me. And what do you know, I got so much more secure and I became more comfortable in my own skin. Sarah Beth was the same way. We both wish we hadn't dated anyone else before we dated each other. If I could go back in time, I would change a lot. But as it is, the world's broken relationships broke me a little bit too until I was finally healed by the love of my wife. I'm being healed by the love of my children. What's all this got to do with this reading? It ends with when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends on him, and the Father's voice is heard. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. How many of us have that security in our hearts, knowing that we're loved by our Father in heaven? I think the reality is a lot of people don't know that they're loved. They don't trust in the Father's love the way that I trust in my wife's love, the way I trust in my children's love. Because it's only when you're loved that you get that security to move through the world with boldness and faithfulness. God requires us to go through the world boldly and faithfully, doesn't he? And yet, how many of us, when we go out into the world, we're scared to talk about the most important thing? 
We're scared to make the most important thing our priority in everything we do. We're scared to make Jesus the litmus test for everything that we do. We'd rather live as worldlings. There are a lot of people who from day to day, they'll show up on Sunday morning and sing Jesus' praises, but then the other six days of the week, they don't live any differently than anybody else. I think that's because they don't know that they are loved by God. Because when you're loved by God, you live with greater security and confidence. The children who are loved by their parents, they're much more confident. They, they, they thrive in the world. Children who don't know that they're loved, they're insecure. They have trust issues, not least of all with themselves. And we have great clarity about what children deserve, but then we get unclear about how important it is for me to feel the Father's love. We get clear when we look at children being neglected, and we don't realize I'm neglecting myself in the way that I lead my spiritual life. I'm not even appealing to God to know his love. And if you don't know God's love, how on earth can you show it to others? You're just faking it. It's not the real McCoy. When you know God's love, when it is burning brightly in you, when you have shown that love to others and you have seen others transformed by that love, you realize there is nothing more important in this life. And whether you're dealing with young people or old people or in between ignorant or genius people, it doesn't matter. All of us need love. And all of us are radically transformed by the love that the Father offers.